So does God command us to obey every type of government we live under? Are there things that I cannot obey government in? For example, can I refuse to pay taxes to a government that supports killing of Christians? Suppose the government started doing that, are we morally required to disobey the government in that? Is it permissible to undertake armed resistance against government? Are we allowed to bear arms? If we felt the government was going around killing Christians, are we allowed to bear hands? And it seems when I read the Bible, the devil is always wielding control over the forces of government. It's difficult to read Daniel without seeing the Prince of Persia there. Or some, some, some dark demonic power seeming to wield forces uh, in some other parts of scripture. It raises a question, doesn't it? Is the government inherently demonic? These are just a few of the many questions we, we all have about government. And I think we can reduce these questions to a simple one. How should we, as followers of Jesus, who love and desire to obey God, relate to our government? And that is an important question because it's a question actually that's motivated by a deeper question. Because we, the question is, how do we relate to a government that can sometimes be oppressive or unfair to believers? We live under an unfair and immoral government. That's a fact. And our inclination is to rebel against the government. And this question and this experience we have is not new. It is a question that two groups that tried to destroy Jesus had when they came to Jesus in Mark 12, verse 13 to 14. Let's read those verses again. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Verse 14, and they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, there are two groups here. The Pharisees, are, as you know, they are the religious ones. They are the back-to-the-Bible characters, we've been calling them. The Herodians are a political action group, we might say. They actively support Herod Antipas. And we last saw this unusual coalition of evil in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where we were taught that they had gone away. Remember when Jesus, do you remember, that's a good quiz question, isn't it? If you all remember Mark chapter 3, verse 6. Do you remember when Jesus healed the man with a withered hand? That's in Mark chapter 3, right? Um, and they were not very impressed with that when he did that in the synagogue. And so they went away, we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, they went away to find a way. It actually says that the Pharisees held counsel with the Herodians to find a way to destroy Jesus. So since Mark chapter 3, they've been plotting. And obviously they've not been doing very well because we are now a few chapters later and they're still at it. They're still trying to find a way of trapping Jesus. And they have decided that the best way to do it is to, act, to, to, to put a trap before him that is prefaced by a grotesque flattery talk. I mean, you can cut the insincerity of their opening statement with a knife. They're just all over it. Look at that. He says, teacher, we know that you, you are true. They don't believe that. And do not care about anyone's opinion. They're just flattering him before they lay out the trap. And the trap 
comes in the, towards the end of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? And if Jesus answers, yes, you should pay, well, he gets in trouble with the people, right? He gets in trouble with the people who don't want to pay these taxes. No one likes to pay taxes. And they, they can't wait for Jesus to say no. If he says no, on the other hand, he gets in trouble with the Romans, right? Jesus could be charged with insurrection. That's why the Herodians are there from the political side, just to make sure if he says no, they will be on hand to report it back to Herod Antipas. So Jesus is trapped here. What is he going to do? And well, Jesus, as, as we've been seeing, we saw it last Sunday evening, didn't we? Jesus comes at it again from a different angle. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius is the equivalent of a day's work, right? It's a coin equivalent to a day's work. And one of them is carrying this denarius. Jesus is interesting that he doesn't carry the money on him, but he's asking the Pharisees or the Herodians if they have one, and one of them produces one. And then Jesus poses the unexpected question in verse 16. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now, the portrait on this coin is Tiberius, the son of Augustus. The inscription that's on it, they don't mention that. Um, the inscription, but the inscription that is on it actually just says, Caesar is divine, Caesar is, is, is a god. But basically, that's what he says. So the coin itself carries this blasphemous inscription on it, actually on both sides. And now we can understand why Jesus, we are told in verse 15, but Jesus knowing their hypocrisy. We are getting a sense of some of the hypocrisy because remember where these people are at. Where are they? They are in the temple, remember. This is what's still happening in the temple. And they are in the temple carrying in their pockets this blasphemous coin. And it might even be being carried by the Pharisees. Right? They are walking around the temple with pockets filled with blasphemy, we might say. And so Jesus says, no, this is hypocritical. What are you doing, carrying, you might say? A coin, and you're asking me questions about how you should pay taxes when you're already, you know, blaspheming by carrying those things. With their hypocrisy, you see, exposed, our Lord Jesus now moves to give his amazing answer in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, this is his answer to their question, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. They're just shocked by that response. Now, when we think about the answer Jesus gives, there are three truths I just want to draw out quickly this evening that addresses that question, remember, we're asking, how should we relate to the government? And there are three truths. The first truth we learn here is that we must give back to the government what it is due. We must give back to the government what it is due. The government has valid authority over the lives of all the citizens, including followers of Jesus. And we must obey the government accordingly. That's what verse 17 is saying. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar, who's the government, the things that are Caesar's. Jesus is saying there is such a thing as Caesar. There is such a thing as the government. Such governments are valid even when they are being ruled by foolish people. The Caesar in Rome is not just foolish, 
He claims to be a god. Or perhaps we should be more accurately say, he claims to be a demon, right? And Jesus says his rule, Caesar's rule, is still valid. And interestingly, Peter, who is listening to Jesus, expands on this obligation for us to obey government in his first pastoral letter while living under the brutal emperor Nero. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17, we read this. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17. It says this, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. As we think about Peter's words and his encouragement for us to obey the government and to honor the emperor, to honor our government, Peter helps us to answer a crucial question that we must first tackle as we think about giving the government what it is due. And the question is this, what exactly is a valid government? Is this just anyone claiming to be a government? When Jesus says, give to Caesar belongs to Caesar, is he just saying, any government? Anyone who claims to be a government? When ISIS took control of Raqqa, um, when he proclaimed his caliphate, was it a government? Around Raqqa and should Christians have given it to you? Is the Taliban currently in charge of parts of Afghanistan and claiming to be a government, a parallel government, a government? Was the Northern Alliance, when it pushed down the Taliban, a legitimate government? These issues may seem very theoretical to us here, but they are real issues for brothers and sisters suffering in the persecuted world. And there may well come a time in this country when there may be live issues for us. It is quite clear, actually, from Peter's words that the government, to be legitimate, must have at least three things in order to claim legitimate authority. First, for a government to be a government, it must have supreme or mandatory control of civilian life. It's interesting, Peter there says, in 1 Peter 2, verse 1, he says, Be subject to the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as what? As supreme, as one who has mandatory control over civilian life. So it must have mandatory control. Secondly, it must be able to punish offenders. A government is not legitimate if it's jettisoned rule of law. So we see that in verse two, in verse 14 of 2 Peter chapter 2. Or to governors as sent by him, that is God, to punish those who do evil, to execute justice, and to praise those who do good, actually, to, to, to do that. Right? So a government must, to be legitimate has to be supreme. It has to have exercised justice. And finally, it has to provide security to the people. Because implicit in this capacity to restrain evil is the idea that it allows life to thrive. Verse 15, isn't it? Verse 14. Or to govern as are sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, but that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. 
By them living within the confines of the rule of law, they are able to be a good witness for God because government has provided that security for them. So these three features are important, right? Mandatory control, justice, and security. If a government can demonstrate that, then it's a valid government. And all of these features are present in Caesar, right? And they are present in our own government today. And it is important, though, to remember that this is important for us to remember because when the government does not meet these three conditions in First Peter, then we are not obligated to obey it. Christians are not obligated to obey a government that has lost control of parts of the country. We are not obligated to obey a government that is unwilling to punish offenders, unwilling to provide security. But we can thank God that we have such a government and it meets the conditions set out by God in First Peter. So we must submit to it. And when we submit to it, we must obey all the tiers of government. We must obey the agents of government, the people who work there, if they issue orders to us, working within the law. And we must obey the instruments of government, the laws themselves. And we must do this at every tier of government, local government all the way up to the queen. Oh, I don't know, the queen doesn't look like she's on top now. But somebody who's up on top, it looks like it's the Supreme Court judges now who are running the country. But we must obey every tier of government. Because we are to give back to government what is due. Government gives us security, justice, control of civilian life in general and, and general security. And we are to give back what it is due as a government instituted by God. Now, now many of us know this already, right? We know that God commands us to obey the government. We know that refusing to obey the government is a sin. And yet the evidence is that we routinely disobey the government. We sin against God by disobeying the government. And we, many of us do that routinely. For example, we know that it is a crime to download movies of music illegally. You're breaking the law of the land. And yet I speak to so many Christians that just do that routinely. You are breaking the law. Whether you are caught or not is beside the point. You are sinning against God. In fact, there's two sins there. You're sinning against God by sinning against the government. And you're sinning against God, you shouldn't do it anyway because it doesn't belong to you. Right? It is a crime for you to avoid paying VAT by purposely using a dodgy garage that only accepts cash. Right? It is a crime. The government requires that you pay your VAT. And when you go to a dodgy garage that is telling you, you know, just use cash, don't pay VAT, right? Because it's cheaper. If you do that, you are disobeying the government. You are sinning against God. There are two sins there, by the way. You're, it's theft, first of all, because you're stealing from other taxpayers, so that's, a, that's theft. And you're disobeying the government, that's another sin. Third, you're committing another sin there, you're encouraging wickedness by heading and abetting the garage. That's just another example. We could go on council tax. What about parking illegally? Even if you are happy to pay the fine, the fact that you have parked illegally, and I hold my hands up, 
Is that your bro- yeah, because my wife will remind me later. You have broken the law. Let's be honest. If you are knowingly packing where you're not supposed to pack, you are breaking the law. Local government laws. Jesus would never do that. That's a sin against the government. My favorite is speeding, isn't it? <laughs> right? Not keeping the speed limit. Beloved, that's a sin. I hope you realize that, that those speed limits, if they're put there by the government, they're mandatory speed limits. Some of them are advisory speed limits. The fact that you're not caught doesn't mean you're not sinning. Oh, beloved, we are more sinful before God than we ever realize. Because these, we could smile about them, but they're actually sins before God. They break his heart. So we realize that even in a, in a, in a dry subject, such as government, we realize that there's so many ways we're just so wicked. Do you see why no one is going to go to heaven by ticking boxes? Because there's so many ways in which we sin against God. And if I was in another church, I would talk about, of course, the difficult problem, which I won't go into, of immigration. Illegal, illegally staying here and forging papers and all the rest of it, breaking the laws of government, etc., etc. That goes on. We move on rapidly. So, <laughs> because these are serious issues, but they're all to do with the law and the fact that we do not take God's law, which says obey the government, seriously. Jesus is saying, give to government what it is due. And we could say the same thing about employers. That's a different sermon in Colossians when I come to that next year. But give to government what it is due. Because as Peter reminds us, the government is God's instrument for our good. Isn't that what he says? For the, or to governance as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's an agent of God. Now, as we think about this, I realize that this is hard for many of us, really. We are living under the most immoral government this United Kingdom has ever known. How do I know that? Because as I study the history of this country, which is my sort of uh, hobby, it gets worse every year. It's actually wickedness in this country, government gets worse every year. Previous governments were more righteous than this. Gladstone's government, oh, wonderful government. Even Disraeli's one was good. So, some might disagree. But Thatcher's, yes, I think it was good. That's just my own private opinion. So, government in this country actually gets wicked and wicked every day um, because not only is our current government, for example, led by an adulterer, it is actually actively supporting murder of the unborn, actively just imposed the law on Northern Ireland to that effect. It is promoting gender confusion. It is doing all it can to destroy marriages. Every year, this government finds more and more ways of doing wickedness. So when we talk about obeying the government, we feel it's uncomfortable for many of us as Christians. There are many reasons not to like the government. Our government hates Jesus. It does. I'm not saying that there are committees they are set up Let's hate Jesus today. But you, can't, you shall know them by their fruits. It hates Jesus. And it does not care for Christians. 
I thank God that they're doing a review of persecuted Christians in the world, but they should do a review here about how they are reducing uh, the freedoms of Christians to preach the gospel. We can't even protest in Walthamstow and expose an MP there who's promoting the murder of the unborn. Christians are not being given that freedom. So it is hard to have warm feelings about the government. And, it's, and I'm sounding like I'm about to sort of uh, encourage an insurrection. No. It's, this is precisely the reason we must ensure that we are not part of the problem. Because the government is so wicked, we must ensure as believers that we are not part of the problem, but part of the solution for the government honoring God. It is hypocritical to pray for change in things in government if you yourself are not obeying the law. So you must ask yourself, am I obeying the law of the land? Are you exercising moral responsibility, for example, to vote? The government encourages you strongly to vote. In this country, it's not illegal to vote, but in Australia it is, isn't it? In this country, it isn't. But actually, I think it's a sin, perhaps, not to vote, unless you've got a very, very good reason. Because actually, God encourages you positively to all the government he has placed in your hands to account. Are you praying for local councillors, MPs, Ministers, are you especially praying for a prime minister? I must say he's an adulterer, yes, but he's, a, he's very hardworking. Are you praying for a hardworking prime minister? Not in sin. Well, he, he does look hardworking in sin sometimes, so that's terrible, but he is working hard in other good areas. Are you praying for Boris Johnson? At least once a month to repent. and Not to repent once a month, but... So let's say, are you praying for him to come to true faith in Christ? Have you set aside time to pray for a government? You know, it's wonderful sometimes when I, when, I, when, I, when I do visit some other churches and I hear them have their intercessory prayer and they're praying for the queen. I used to think, what's this about? But I'm realizing that it's good. We need to be serious about these things. That's why it's good to go through the Bible verse by verse, isn't it? We, might, we, we need to pray for our leaders that they come to know Jesus. Are you taking a direct interest in how the authority of government is exercised, or do you just say, I'm not into politics, so this is all boring to me? But God is commanding us to obey the government, and therefore we have a legitimate stake to ensure that our voice is being heard. We should write petitions, we should write letters, we should get to know our local MP. We should be active citizens. We must give the government what it is due, and that is not simply you paying your taxes or avoiding crime. It is you fulfilling your responsibility as a citizen. So that's the first truth we learn here, isn't it? We must give the back to government what it is due. The second truth Jesus teaches us here is that we must give back to God what he is due. We must give back to God what he is due. The Pharisees and Herodians here, their question is just about government. It is a yes or no answer, isn't it? Should we pay our taxes or should we not? They're just expecting yes or no. But Jesus rejects their parameters, doesn't he? Caesar is not the only king. He wants to make that clear to them. There is another person who has valid authority over us, and that is God. And he also demands that we obey him. Let's go look at verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The word is and. 
and to God. It is telling us that there is something about God that is similar to Caesar. God has a kingdom. And like Caesar, he demands that we obey him. But that is where the similarity ends, right? The authority of God over our lives is absolute. There's no time, there's no geographical limit. And so God is in a different category to Caesar. Jesus is saying we must obey God in all things. Because the question we look at it, the question here is this. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. What are God's? Well, God owns everything. God owns everything. And he says, therefore, give God your very life. Give God everything you want. You must give him the due. Give, him, give back to God what is due for all the blessings he has given you. Do you see here, Jesus is pressing that question we looked at last Sunday. Do you remember the question last Sunday? Who is the ultimate authority in your life? That's what we were asking last Sunday evening. Who calls the shots in your life? And Jesus is back to it again, isn't it? Jesus is reminding us here that sin is rejecting the ownership of God over our lives. Sin is not giving God what is due. And we are to give God what is due. We are to give him our very whole, our very life. We are to surrender everything to him. And living for God is not simply saying, I am a follower of Jesus. Anybody can say that. I'm sure even demons can say that. Uh, it demands some practical changes in our lives. If we mean that statement, it should somehow have a practical effect in how we live. Living for God means surrendering our very own in practical terms. You see, if you're a parent here, you know that it is possible for your child, it's possible for a child to be in the family and yet live like he's not or she's not in the family. It's possible. Many of our children have a bedroom existence, isn't it? It's quite possible. The child just comes and eats and goes to their bedroom. Does that. That, that happens quite often you hear from parents. They're in the family, but they have carved out a little kingdom for themselves. That happens in families. This is also possible for believers. We can have God as our father, but live in a way that is all about our little kingdoms within his kingdom. Somehow we have like declared a little Brexit for ourselves, you know, within God's kingdom. And then Jesus is saying, God's design is that our relationship must be like that of a child who is always depending on his or her parents for everything. It should be like a wife or husband who is always giving their time, their effort, their money to the other person. We are to put God first in everything. We are to give God back or to give back to God what he is due. And it's not just time. I mean, we could have a whole discussion around that. It's your very life. Listen, living for Jesus is not so much about surrendering. You know, there's some people, you know, living for Jesus is not about surrendering a little pocket of my life here, a little pocket of my life here, a little pocket of my life there. No, living for Jesus is you getting a white flag of surrender. You can say everything here is surrendered to you. I like to say it like this. Living for Jesus is saying this. Lord, Lord, even before you ask the question, 
Even before you ask the question, the answer is yes. Anywhere, anytime, any place, my answer is yes. So, Lord, please tell me the question. I want to hear it. Whatever it is, the answer is yes. That's what it means to be a Christian. Death to self. Is this your surrender to him? Are you, as you sit here this evening, saying to Jesus, anywhere, anytime, any place, the answer is yes. Whatever it takes. Whatever you demand from me, the answer is yes. I don't know what the question is, but I'm surrend- I've surrendered to you like that. Many of us are not willing to surrender to God like that. And the truth of the matter is that we are not giving God what he is due. I would question whether we are Christians at all, actually, if that isn't the fundamental posture of our hearts. Because a Christian always grows to surrender more, but they start with the white flag of surrender. Do you follow that? They must raise the white flag and then work out its implications. And they're fighting God over the implications, right? But their heart has already decided. And many of us hear sermons after sermons about this topic. You've heard a GH sermons already. But no change in, in your life. Why? Because you fear that Jesus, you don't want to surrender. In your heart of hearts, you don't want to surrender like that. Why? Because you fear that Jesus, if you, did, if you went to God tonight and you told him that, you fear he will ask you to sacrifice something you don't want to sacrifice. You are afraid of what he may demand from you. You are afraid that true surrender to Jesus, for example, may bring pain to your family or friends. The sacrifice may be too great for them. What if I tell God, yeah, yeah, anywhere, anytime, but the anytime, the anywhere turns out to be China. I, I mean, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I can tell you that right now. I'm not ready for that. You're probably thinking. You see, the other thing is you're afraid that true surrender to Jesus, true biblical, biblical surrender to Jesus may cost you your dreams. It may mean giving up the job that you love. It, Jesus actually, in the Bible, has a habit of calling people away from their dreams. Have you noticed that? So think carefully about this. Yeah, he has a habit of calling people away from their dreams. I'm sure Peter always dreamed to be the greatest fisherman in Galilee. And it never turned out to be the case. And so you see, many people come to church week in, week out, week in, week out, deluded, of course, about their true position before God because they have no genuine surrender to Jesus. And the reason why they can't surrender to Jesus is a matter of trust. You see, there are people in our lives who we will trust with that question. I'm not going to go around saying I'll trust you with this question. Or no. I trust my wife with that question. There are some people you go to, you tell them anywhere, anytime, whatever you say, the answer is yes. Because we trust them. 
that they would never ask us something that's not in our interest or for good for us. But we are afraid of surrendering like that to God. Why? Because we do not trust him. And because we do not trust God, we do not have faith in God. Because remember what we learned? Faith is trusting God based on what we know of him. Jesus is asking you, do you trust me? If you do, then give me what I am due in your life. Give me your life. The third thing we learn here, so the first thing is we must give back to Jesus, we must give back to government what it is due. The second thing Jesus teaches us here is that we must give back to God what it is due. And the third and final thing we learn here is that we must give back to God over the government. Giving back to God as superiority over the government. First with the two choices, God is always must be obeyed above government. Notice here that although Jesus puts Caesar and God side by side as valid authorities, the words are clear that God is way greater. God is bigger than the government. Look at verse 17. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus does not say, give to God only and Caesar is already covered. Right? <laughs> or give to Caesar and God is covered. He says, each must have their due. But he underpins that with the need for us to recognize that there are two separate realms of authority here and that God controls everything, isn't he? God has authority over all life. He has priority even over the government. Because when we ask the question, give to God what belongs to God, we must ask ourselves what belongs to God, why it includes Caesar. This is the genius of Jesus' answer. The denarius has an inscription here that claims Caesar is divine. Jesus is refuting that. He's saying God rules over Caesar. And therefore we must give even Caesar, even the government itself, to God. If we're serious about giving God what is due, then we must hand over the government, so to speak. We must work so that the government becomes righteous uh, and lives in a way that, that honors God. And what this also tells us is that if the government acts outside its distinct boundaries of responsibility, we are morally obligated by God to disobey the government. Acts 5, verse 20, 27 says this. Do you remember that story of Peter and John? Um, uh, Acts 5, verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name. Yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. That's the bottom line. What that passage is telling us is that civil disobedience is permissible if and when the government materially forces us to disobey the authority of God. If there's a material requirement for us to disobey God, we must say, no thanks. Shoot us, kill us, we'll obey God instead. It's a situation we find in Daniel, isn't it? With Daniel's three friends and Daniel himself. If on the other hand, the government permits followers of Jesus to live for Jesus as the Bible commands us, then we must be responsible citizens. We must obey the laws of the land. 
You see, the point is that God rules over the government, and that rule of God means if you're a follower of Jesus, you must be willing as well to disobey the government, if you must. But the bar for disobeying the government is clearly high, isn't it? It is high because Jesus is living under Caesar and is not leading a revolution. He's obeying, he's living under Caesar's law. Peter will live under Nero and you obey. So the bar for raising our fist against the government, as it were, is quite high, so to speak. But the point remains God trumps Trump, doesn't he? God is bigger than Boris. That's the point. Now, in theory, all followers of Jesus believe that, don't we? We believe that, right? God is bigger than the government. The question I want to pose to you this evening is, do you really? Do you really believe God is bigger than the government? Because I'm thinking to myself, if we believe God is bigger than the government, then we should be doing more talking to God than talking about the government. We should be doing more lobbying God than lobbying the government. I've just encouraged you to write petitions. But I'm assuming you write more petitions to God than the government. You see, many Christians in the West are feeling hopeless about life and society in general. You know, we are living under the most massive surveillance the world has ever seen, particularly in the UK. We feel powerless. Government controls most of our data. It practically runs our lives from the moment we are born. From the moment you are born, your DNA is sequenced, and government owns all of that data. You, we are weak in so many ways against the government. And the government that owns this information is anti-God. So there's a sense of hopelessness we feel, fueled by these new technologies and the power that government is wielding more and more of our lives. Any issue that comes up, we just lose the debate just like that. It feels so hopeless. But Jesus is saying here that God is bigger than the government. God is in charge, and we must remember that, isn't it? Because you see, the danger of living in a powerless society which we are living in is that we may feel that the only way we can have control of our lives is by having more government power. But Jesus is saying no. God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. God is perfectly capable of looking after his church. He doesn't need government to do that. We praise God for the gift head, but God can fund his church without the gift head. You see, the increasing power of government over our lives restricts our human capacity, but it does not restrict God's capacity. So as we think about what Jesus is saying, it challenges who are we looking to in life to bring about change in this country? Is it God or the government? This view also challenges those of us who believe the government is a pure realm of Satan. Now, as I said, there is no doubt that the Bible shows us that there are demonic structures behind government and power structures, I believe, around the world. We just see that, principalities and powers, we read all of these things in the scriptures. There's no doubt about that. The series we did on um, Satan, we had much discussion around that. But that does not mean God is not in control over all rule and authority. The devil still remains God's devil. God is sovereign over Satan. He's outman in charge over good and bad rulers. God is as in charge 
here in this country as he is in charge in the Toraboa Mountains in Afghanistan or in Peshawar province in Pakistan. So this truth says we should look to God and we should be confident even in, in, in a society we are living in. On the other hand, this truth challenges those of us who claim that God has nothing to do with government. There are some Christians who, who are very keen to tell us to stay out of politics. They think it's not up to the church to tell you who to vote for, perhaps. I mean, we could have a debate about that. They have that view that church should stay out. It's not just a secular view. There are Christians who believe that. They believe that it's not up to the church to point out whether the prime minister is immoral or not. It's too political. But Jesus is making clear here that we are to give God what he is due, and that includes the government because it is under his realm. So yes, we are not arguing for a theocracy, but we are arguing for maximum godly influence in government. That's biblical. We have a moral obligation as followers of Jesus to encourage our nation to have leaders who recognize and submit to God. It is a sin to turn a blind eye to the wickedness of our leaders and the laws that are in the land. So this means we should be honest about sin in those leadership, from council officials to the top of government. This means we should pray for leaders who love, that go to leaders who love God. This means we must take voting serious indeed. Now we can have a further, I'm sure, Bible study discussion about how, how that looks like. But that's what God is calling us. So the question was, how do we relate to government? Well, first by giving back to government what it is due. But we need to do that in light of the second truth. And the second truth is that we must give back to God what is due. God is the supreme authority over all our lives. And therefore, we must surrender to him first. And if we are, don't surrender to him first, we're just hypocrites. We have no even right to talk about government issues if our heart before God is not right. Finally, we must give back to God over the government. This means we must be ready, if necessary, to disobey the government. Because God is supreme. Amen.